Welcome back to The Factory Next Door. It's time for a new series. I missed you, you know. Before we kickstart the show and head across the country, I just popped out to my local park, Bushy Park in southwest London. It's a good place to take a moment for me to say thanks to you. Thanks for letting me join you on your walk, your drive, your half an hour tea break. I don't take your company for granted and I wanted to make sure you knew that. Some things need to be said, that was one of them. Okay, cue the usual music. My name's Steve and I love people who make things. We are a nation of inventive, inspiring makers. This room alone will produce 100,000 items uh, a year in this room, but yeah, it used to be full of cows. <laughs> surrounded by sewing machines. So we're passing now rows and rows of partially built frames. And this show is about celebrating the skills and craft on our doorstep. Because if we don't champion them, we risk losing them. One of the biggest challenges we have here is our ageing workforce. It has been very tricky to keep the supply of parts going. Join me as we hear the stories from behind the factory doors. My poor son, he jokes about it now. You used to make me sleep in a suitcase. I don't know how you describe that on audio. I'm not sure. I mean, you're challenging me now. We never argue. Sure, we have a bit of a... Yeah, we have tense moments. <laughs> Together, let's make more makers. This is Great Yarmouth on the Norfolk coast, East England. And I'm looking out over a uh, very blustery but magnificent beach. It's actually a very quiet beach. There's just a couple of people walking along it. Look like a couple having a little stroll. Got the whole beach to themselves because it's off season. Uh, this place used to have a thriving fishing industry. Now um, very much a seaside resort. Um, got lots of uh, lots of slot machines and gaming machines and all of the things you'd expect for the tourists in the summer months. Plenty of fish and chip shops, mainly closed unfortunately, otherwise I would definitely grab a bag of chips. Take my chances with the seagulls. Uh, we've got silver slipper games, golden nugget games. Caesar Palace. Um, though I don't think that one is twinned with the one in Las Vegas. Um, I'm here actually to celebrate a piece of clothing that has come out of the fishing industry. A piece of clothing that was tremendously popular among fishermen, the fisherman's smock. Uh, and I'm heading off to um, meet a company which has been making it for 125 years. Whilst I head over to the clothing maker, have a listen to what's coming up in today's show. When everybody else was shipping their manufacturing overseas, we persevered with making here. In, in trouble of turning off the music. Oh, So it's a design that's really evolved out of necessity and efficiency over like a hundred years. Most of the fish boys had big roll neck jumpers, the fishermen smog. Sou'westers and the old skins and the thigh boot. God, I thought it really looked good. She was my, my biggest model, Pauline Fowler. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pauline water. Fowler. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> supplied her water. I just came a couple of streets back from Yarmouth's beachfront. A very different landscape here. Got uh, lots of warehouses, lots of kind of industrial units. 
and I'm just in front of a red brick building with Yarmouth stores printed on the outside and I think that's where I'm due to be heading in. Just through there. Thank you very much. Happy Tuesdays. Happy Wednesday. Sorry. Sorry. Um, my name is Sophie Miller. I look after design and commercial for Yarmouth Stores and Yarmouth Oilskins, which is our brand. Um, and so we're in Yarmouth Stores now. Uh, is it two stories? Yeah. Well, we sprawl a bit. We, yeah. Two, two stories and lots of add-on buildings. Yeah. So we're downstairs in the cutting room um, and it's made up of three really long tables, high, high benches. And on the first bench, Zander is looking after patterns and cutting and sample cutting. And we work all with card patterns. Um, on this big table is Richard and Lorraine who are both cutting using like a, a jigsaw type knife to cut through all of the pattern pieces. But it's really skillful. Rich and Lorraine are married. The husband and wife that they work each end of the table. Yeah. We've got a married couple. Married here. couple. And they do it, yeah, which is brilliant. And they're cutting in, in sync. Yeah, cutting in sync, day in, day out. They're all over this. <laughs> They've got it sorted. I'm just watching this couple. Not even a glance at each other. No, I kind of wondered whether there'd be this romantic little oh, kind no, of no, nod to right one now. another. I think no. they've been doing it for about 15 years. <laughs> that went a long time ago. Do you like working with your husband? He's not listening, don't worry. He's my colleague when he's in here. He <laughs> <laughs> becomes my husband when I take him over dinner. <laughs> what do you love about your job? You're doing this, but when you see the end result, you feel good about what you've done and what you've achieved. When you think it's the challenge as well, because if I'm doing a lay like this, it could be up to 100, could be up to 150. You've only got to make one mistake, and that is 150 garments ruined. When everybody else was shipping their manufacturing overseas, we persevered with making here. Um, and making low, low value, low quality, high volume workwear. So chef's trousers, um, quite basic uniforms and that sort of thing. Um, but clearly that's not financially viable because you're competing with things made in the Far East that are sold for pence rather than employing people a fair wage. So when I first met um, the family that owned the business, it was 2017, I think, and... And the, the, the owner said to me, what, what could we do? What would it look like? And uh, obviously, because I come from a design background, there's so many really good things it could look like. So he said, okay. And I, at that point, I was working freelance and doing various design projects for different people. And he said, look, put together a proposal of what it would look like. So that's when I sort of did the blueprint for Yarmouth Oilskins. And it was revisiting all of these pieces that they'd made in their 125-year history, really putting back in all of the the value that had had to be engineered out for cost. So everything was made with French seams using really nice quality fab British fabrics, um, Corozo buttons, and really making something special out of the basic workwear that they knew how to make. And then we went to, I think it was Make It British in 2016, 2017. And that's where we sort of launched Oilskins as a brand. How much of a 
uphill struggle, if at all, was it for you to come in and say, listen, you need a different business plan? I think, I think possibly, oh, maybe naively. I, I've worked with many different brands, many different big brands. So I worked for Marks and Spencers for a very long time. I worked for Adidas for a long time. I worked in Italy for Max Mara. So I'm used to, and then I do a lot of freelance work as well. So I'm quite used to blundering in and saying, oh, this is nice, we should be doing this, this is how you do it, you know. And I think looking back now, this little network of people, Sharon's admitted, she thought, who the hell is this woman? You know, she's admitted, she said really bluntly, I didn't like you at first, oh, great. Sharon's the office Sharon's, manager who's yeah. been here for decades. <laughs> he's been here forever. I didn't like you at first, because essentially having somebody coming in saying, oh, we should be doing that, no, we need to do it. No, you can do it. And being quite tenacious of, no, we can do that. No, it's, it's fine. We can. And I've worked with factories all over the world, and I'm used to the stock answer for a factory manager is usually, no, you can't do that. So you have to be quite persuasive and, come on, we, should, we, we can do this. Here we. And so there was possibly a little bit of... Uh, learning to know how to work with each other then but now six years down the line we've we've got it like a well-oiled machine around the walls here there are on hooks well i mean i would suspect hundreds yeah of absolutely and we've got pieces of card we've got them going back like we've been here for, we've been here for 125 years so there's card patterns obviously not all of them are in use but we have a hook for every style. Um, I know, you know, if you work on a huge scale factory, it will be digitised and printed digitally. So everything here is literally like you would do dressmaking at home, you know, with a, with a card pattern. It's quite hands-on. It's Without being rude, it probably hasn't changed that much no. since you started 125 no, years ago. So. No, I don't think so at all. Um, which and it's that whole thing, isn't it? That you, whether you choose to do automation and everything being you know mechanically run or do we do it quite traditionally and at the moment this is how we do it and it's quite labor intensive but it's also working with hands and that craft thing and it's very um everybody has a has an input into making the garment you know Lorraine's cutting here Lorraine cuts all of the smocks that's how it happens and you know that's how we do it here is, is, has that been a conscious decision or or it was never a question. Actually, this I is think, just the way we, we produce things. It would have been a, a financial thing, you know, in terms of investing in a huge laser cutter and digitised printing and all of that. So I think possibly initially it was a financial thing, but over the last sort of five, Sorry. five years... getting in the way here. ...when we sort of relaunched Yarmouth Oilskins, it was quite a conscious decision to um, use traditional methods and... I don't want to say labour-intensive, but the ways that things would have been done 125 years, it was quite conscious to do that and, and not to um, wash all of that out and become automated and super-efficient and, you know, not that we're trying to be inefficient, but <laughs> you know what I'm... <coughs> Up the stairs we go. Ah, surrounded by sewing machines. Turn the radio off, so like, we're just doing a bit of talking, so that's why I turn the radio off. Won't be long. Thank you. In, in trouble of turning off yeah, the music. Oh dear. Shall I talk you through what we do up here? Oh, it's very quiet now, isn't it? So up here in the sewing room, um, 
often in factories, in, in big clothing factories, they'll have a production line, I've probably seen it, where somebody does one part of a garment and then it gets past the person in front of them who does the next part and someone's on pockets. We don't do that. We have somebody make something from beginning to end. So probably because we've got a fairly relatively small team, um, each machinist is quite independent, so they're not relying on somebody in front of them being here or not being here and doesn't hold everything up. Um, and it also means that they're really skilled, that they, they can put a whole garment together rather than just apply a pocket or something. So we're looking out over, I don't know, a dozen machinists, skilled makers. It's actually a beautiful scene, isn't it? Oh, I, with the big, huge yeah, windows as well, looking is, out over so that's, Yarmouth. That's the river there. And in our history, like, so we're, all, we're on South Quay in Yarmouth, um, and the river runs parallel with us. And a hundred years ago, this would have been the hive of the town, where fishing boats came in from all over the world. And the herring industry was a huge industry here. So people would, um, all the fish would get onto the quayside. And Yarmouth stores had shops all along. I think we had about six or seven shops all along this quayside like supplying everything that the fishing trade needed so we we made baskets we made ropes we did all of the outerwear all of the oil skins but this is the last remaining one so jackie is making smocks here which is our kind of mainstay we're just watching you jackie while you do some smock making what makes a smock what are the distinctive features of a smock. Here we are. The oh, Jack is showing us one. Thank you. It's an over-the-head, um, rigid fabric garment. Initially, when you were out at sea, so you'd have your Gansey jumper underneath and then you put the smock on top that keeps the wind out, an element of the rain out, um, and it doesn't have an opening, so there were no flappy bits to get caught on your boat or, you know, caught in machine or allow drafts in. So they're designed to be quite loose. It's kind of almost like a kimono shape that the arms come out straight. And then the front and back are cut as one continuous piece. So there's no shoulder seam. So this is one huge strip of fabric that goes all the way up the back and to the front. And the neckline, this is amazing, is cut just as a slit. Um, so when Lorraine cuts this out downstairs, she just cuts a slit and then from that they make, they attach the collar. So it's a design that's really evolved out of necessity and efficiency over like a hundred years, which I really like that it's it, it, it's It's almost, is it the perfect utilitarian absolutely. piece of clothing? Absolutely, and I'm always in a smock. It's just really easy. You can layer it over anything. Presumably the two patch pockets at the front yeah. also are classic characteristic yeah, sign of a mock, smock tape on the pockets so that it's like really durable so when every time you put it's like big enough for anything and nowadays it's big enough for a mobile phone which is fantastic and then we put um, reinforced that is that is forward thinking is there forward isn't thinking it oh we need to need to make the pockets <laughs> big enough for future technology massive. the phones are going to get massive <laughs> and people have stories where they've had their smocks for, for years for decades you know we had a message this week from a guy who'd bought a smock from a fisherman in Cromer, up in North Norfolk, probably 35, 40 years ago. And he said, it's finally given up. Can I have another one, please? And, and I said, well, send me a photo of your smock. And he sent me this amazing photo. And he'd, it had a, a slightly weird neckline. And he wondered if we could do something like that. It was like a really narrow neckline. And I said, yeah, we'll have a go. So um, people keep them for life. It's that whole companion clothing, isn't it? That it, it that's your thing. And of course, it, it, it started, as you said, for fishermen. 
but it, it, it's design, it's utilitarian design, then actually it was picked up by lots of other yeah, professions. It's a really um, interesting bit um, that I read by, um, about how the Newland School of Art picked up on it and that it was really important they were, as they were painting these Cornish fishermen all wearing smocks that the painters thought it was the most pr practical thing to wear so that's in theory where the artist's smock comes from that they saw it as a practi practical coverall that goes over your clothes to prevent them from spoiling so I think that's interesting it has got a kind of uh, sort of artisan look to it as well doesn't it it conjures up a thing, a look it does, it does so it, it was initially designed to kind of hold, I don't know fishing hucks then it went to artist paints, artist and now it's oversized it's mobile phones. <laughs> Hi, if you're enjoying the show and want to support our makers and manufacturers, please hit the subscribe or follow button. If you're listening on Apple, hit the stars and rate the show. It takes a small moment, but makes a big difference. Thanks. Right, back to the chat. Tell me a bit about your experience before Yarmouth, then. Um, before Yarmouth, I... Uh, when I first left university, I went to work in Italy, um, working for Morella, which is part of Max Mara Group, which was amazing. Um, suddenly being thrown into um, Italian countryside with a bicycle to go to work and designing with these amazing fabrics and relatively small quantities and just understanding how the whole cycle of fashion works with salesman samples and buying windows and all of that. So I did that. Um, for quite a while and then I was I wanted to come back to London so I moved back to London and worked for Dewhurst which is a really big supplier to Marks and Spencers and initially I'd done that to just get an experience of bulk manufacturing and commercial and, and all that and I was only intending to do it for like a couple of years and I was working on ladies tailoring so suits at that point and then I ended up staying for 13 years because I absolutely loved it. And in that time, I moved from doing jeans wear to casual wear to laundry processing and, and so designing for all different departments. But that was an amazing education in uh, overseas manufacturing and understanding how to communicate your ideas from a piece of paper to something that ultimately ends up hanging in a shop at Marble Arch on Oxford Street and set... and monitoring the sales figures of that. I think one, one blouse that I designed, all of the quantities are done in dozen. So that's how they measure sales. How many dozen. And one shirt that I designed sold 25,000 dozen. And you kind of get at £25 that if you can get that formula right, it's, no, it's not about amazing design or the most beautiful XYZ. It's about finding a a product that that many people want to spend their hard-earned cash on. I really enjoyed that, you know. As a that summer, you could probably walk down, you could probably walk down yeah. any city in Britain and be like, "That one's that mine. One. That yeah. one's mine." And well, that Pauline Fowler on EastEnders would always wear my blouses. She was my my biggest model, Pauline Fowler. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Pauline Fowler. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> supplied her wardrobe. <laughs> so from the and so that was when I was living in London, and then I wanted to move back to Norfolk and ended up uh, working for a, a, a sort of a, as a consultant for a subsidiary company for Adidas, which was amazing. And uh, it was working on like kind of special projects. So Adidas is a huge machine that has a big 
sort of seasonal calendar of what happens. But sometimes there are quick projects like torchbearers for the Beijing Olympics or um, World Cups, tournament years, all of those things. So my responsibility was to do design projects for special one-offs for things like that, which was amazing and really good. And I, and even now I still do a little bit of football merchandise and crazy things with the French national football team and things like that. But um, it's a world away from what I do with Yarmouth Oilskins. You're not old. Mm. <laughs> but I do want to, uh, and I don't want this question to suggest you yes. are old. That's yes. why I'm preempting it. You are, not remotely, you are not remotely old, Sophie, but I do <coughs> imagine that you will have seen substantial changes oh. in British manufacturing, in clothing, when, for example, yes. you were at Dewhurst. Yes. Um, you know, kind of, it's just probably that, those years oh, where there were significant changes. Yes, absolutely. Like when I, I think when I first started working for Dewhurst, which was a big British manufacturer for Marks and Spencers, solely Marks and Spencers, they didn't manufacture anybody else, it was 1996, 97, and there was a, well, Suits, Suits factory up in um, Sunderland, in Leechmere, shirt factory in Peterlee in the northeast, jeans were over at Cardigan, um, and laundries for the jeans. So it was all very, very British, and it was that time, I, I didn't leave there until 2006, so it was over that time where everything kind of shifted initially to North Africa, Morocco, and then shifted a little bit further to Turkey, um, and then a little bit further to Malaysia. Um, and there was a, we were just looking at China when I left, but it, it was a, in terms of really sad for British manufacturing, that just chasing the price point to, to be able to deliver a shirt for £25. So you, there, there has to be something that's got to give, you know, and sourcing fabrics from the Far East rather than Europe was a big change that happened. Um, and that's why I love what we're doing so much here because there is so much, so many skills left in the UK that had it, had it been another 10 years, they would have all died off. We, we, one of the biggest challenges we have here is our ageing workforce and recruiting younger people to want to be involved in manufacturing um, because it's, it's not a glamorous part of the fashion industry. People, you know, people don't leave university wanting to become machinists and craftspeople. They want to be fashion marketing or design, or um, and that's something we really struggle with here. And you, and and yet you speak to people um, in your lovely workshops, like we have mm. just now. And and um, uh, you know, I I got a sense that it was genuine, not fake. They've got big smiles on their faces, yeah. and you ask them about you know kind of whether they enjoy it, and they and they like they love creating something. Mm. It's they really love special. the sense of actually thinking I've made that. Yeah, I think it's really special, and it's an an amazing set of skills that, that we were saying earlier that you can kind of get tricked into taking for granted because you see it all the time. But it's really unusual to have somebody that can make ten pairs of trousers in an hour, and they're immaculate. They're beautiful quality. There is a real pride in in making what they make, and they love it um, when we have success and when we see things like Ben Fogel wears a lot of our things, and which is somebody who they kind of can relate to, and they'll see on their TV screens. So if Ben Fogel's trekking around the world wearing our Admiralty shirt, 
everybody here has a there's a flurry on our group whatsapp there's a flurry of excitement and pride did, did i make that no, yeah you, exactly no, who did no, that who that. did that I shirt definitely made yeah that one. I definitely, made, yeah, shirt. I definitely made yeah. that one yeah so there's a flurry of of uh, excitement and pride in that so when things are made and buttons and everything finished they come to the QC table. Yes, this is the QC table. This is the QC table where Debbie will check everything. Well, you, yeah. ta- you say what you do, where Debbie. We make them all lovely. <laughs> we put them in a nice bag, we trim them all. Um, what are you looking for at the QC table, Debbie? I'm looking at the stitching to make sure the stitch, stitching's all nice and all, all right. Um, just checking, you know, all, all the way round the garment, basically. Turn it inside out, brush it, give it a good checking over hopefully there's nothing wrong with it if there is that will go back but mainly our machinists are very good i was about to say how often does it happen do you, and what happens do you kind of ring a bell or or tell very loudly i just say hello <laughs> now, now i know who's made that garment so i'll take it back to them do they do they fear your footsteps they do, they do. oh Debbie is on her <laughs> way. Who's she, who she going to stand next Debbie's to? <laughs> or Carol? Yeah. Who's the scariest of the two? I think Carol is actually. Yeah. I think she might be. Yeah. Okay. This, this is the good bit that I really love. Um, we're now going over a walkway into this building, which again is so all of this is all our buildings, it just sprawls forever. Um, wow, it's just lots of little buildings joined yeah. together. Yeah, loads of, So I think, like, 50, oh, I'll get a light switch. 50, 60 years ago, this would have all been sewing room and there would have been um, production everywhere. But now we use this as our um, sort of pick, pack and dispatch, so we keep all of our stock here. Um, so every time we have an order, either a wholesale order or a, um, a direct sales one, Lena will come and pick the sizing and pack it and then send it off so this this table's always exciting so i mean we're seeing shelves of garments all beautifully wrapped in their little, uh, we little still, plastic yeah, wrapper we, we're trying to go as plastic free as we can so when they are here in storage because it's a really old building um we have to store them in plastic when they're on the shelves but then we we don't send them out in that we take them out and then we use the plastic again for storing others so although we do keep them in plastic because that's the best solution to keep them dust and damp free we don't use that for selling and then this is always interesting this shows you where in the world everything's going to so this is for uh North John in Whitby one of our retailers Whitby um, I love Whitby a beautiful town to Auckland this one's going Garden objects in New Zealand, so they sell our small. All of these garments are going to New Zealand. Oh, it's amazing! Happy travels. Yeah, I love it. And we sell to Japan and um, all over the world, China. These we call them our keep samples. So it's literally a reference sample for everything that we've made over the last fifty years or so. That's a lot of garments. Yeah, it's a lot of garments. So everything there's a, um, it's basically a reference sample. So if we want to remake something. We've got the sketch, um, the dimensions, how it's constructed, what it looks. This is a hat, a wool hat that we've done. As a designer, I love it. In that it's a really nice reference of, I mean, this must be for how many years old? I don't know. But, yeah, I love it that it's quite a good reference point of styling and what we've done in the past. We do a lot for export to Japan, um, and we've done that for a long time, probably 
25, 30 years. Um, so there's a lot of things that are very specific to the Japanese market, like quite oversized shapes, um, which is really cool, really nice things. And there's some things that obviously the ladies through there are like, what is that? What are you making? This is something that we've made? It's like a, I don't know how you'd describe that on audio. I'm not sure. I mean, you're challenging me now. Yeah. So I guess I would probably describe that as actually the shape is like a bulletproof vest, well, but actually a, a long version. Longlands <laughs> type thing. Um, that was a very specific request for a Japanese customer. So that was that was a Japanese customer yeah. wanting that. That is yeah, that is an interesting company. design. Because so, obviously there's a whole thing of um, British manufacturing and the provenance of British. Um, here we are, look, quilted smock again. That's a Japanese one. A long quilted smock. Yeah, it's, it's good though. I mean, it, it's variety. <laughs> it, and it's presumably very good as in challenging you as a designer. I, yeah, I think so. I think it's really interesting. It's really nice that um, there's obviously lots of styles that we've that are in our history and, I, and personally I really love that whole utilitarian functional everything's there because it serves a purpose type thing but there's also some quite interesting things in terms of the the techniques involved and the skills and quilting and knitting and all of those that broaden our um our skill set I guess in terms of manufacturing that looks like it's coming back into fashion that jacket yeah, you just shown very cool <laughs> Do you ever take a moment to pat yourself on the back? God, I'm, I'm really proud of what I've done with the Armoth Oil Skins. I, don't, I, don't, not, I, am re I really live, breathe it. I'm obsessed with it and bore people ad infinitum about it. I don't congratulate myself because I think it's a... I, I think I'm very lucky. Because um, I don't... Th if we hadn't done what we've done with oil skins, I don't know that we'd still be here. I don't think the factory would have still... Because it didn't make financial sense. So I think there's an immense pride in having had an idea and have it having worked. There are so many other factors that aren't just about good design, you know, the commercials and all of that stuff of securing a factory manufacturing in England at the moment. It's quite hard work. It's quite difficult. So I wouldn't say, hey, it's all done, job done, brilliant. But I think we're way further on the path of that than we were five or six years ago. Um, Sophie, it's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for showing me around. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. So before I leave Great Yarmouth, there's someone I want to meet. Because um, having spent a bit of time here chatting to Sophie, it's, it's really clear to me how, until very recently, fishing was the story of this area. It was the story of Yarmouth stores. So I have reached out to the Fisherman's Mission charity and asked if they can help me hook up with a fisherman for a cup of tea and a chat about their clothing. And I've just realised I did a terrible pun there with hook. Um, sorry about that. Um, so anyway, I'm going to head down the coast a couple of miles to Lowestoft. My name's Keith, Keith Mayall, and um, I, I always wanted to be a fisherman and my father was a fisherman, his father's was a fisherman, so our, our fishing family goes back to two or three centuries. And I was just one of them boys who always wanted to go to sea. And I can remember saying to my mother, can I go to sea with father? And mother said, no, you're too young. 
Well, I used to pester my father suffering terrible. And in the end, he said to my mother, right, I'll take that boy to sea. He's nine year old. He'll either like it or he won't like it. And we were spent three days at sea. I came home and I said to my mother, mum, I'm going to be a fisherman. That's all I want to be. What, what, what was driving you to become a fisherman? Because Lowestoft was primarily a fishing port. All my friends, most of my school friends, parents, uh, fathers were fishermen. I remember coming home with my school report and the teacher said, Keith's not what you call very academic, but by God, he'll be a good fisherman because that's all I wanted to talk about was fishing. The gear we used to use, obviously, most of the fishing boys had big roll neck jumpers. The fishermen smock. Sou'westers and the old skins and the thigh boots. God, I thought he really looked good. And us young fishermen, we were called two-day millionaires because we only had two days in harbour. People don't realise that, how hard it was. We went to sea and just had two, two clear days in harbour. What did you spend it on? Or should I not ask? Well, no, we used to... I mean, we enjoyed ourselves because we knew we only had two days. So we would go and have a drink, um, go to dances, girlfriends and whatever. So great. I mean, the, the high street, everything about Lowestoft was booming. After a couple of three years, us young fishermen, we got in a craze of coloured suits. And there was a tailor's in Lowestoft called Lawrence Green. And all the fishing boys used to go up there and get the suits ordered. Some would get red suits, some would get green suits, yellow suits, blue suits. Well, my claim to fame was I had a purple suit with black lapels, black pleats and black turnips. In them days, we used to add the bell-bottom trousers to cover the suits. Can I ask a slightly silly question? Why, was, why were the clothes so important to you? Well, <clears throat> I'll tell you why the reason was. We were at sea for 12 days, right? And we were working in horrible conditions. And so some rush young lads thought we're, we're, we're on a 90-foot trawler, 10 other crew members in one little cabin... What we want to do, when we get in harbour, we want to brighten our lives up. So one of the young lads said, I'll tell you what, why don't we get a right flashy coloured suit? That'll brighten our lives up. And that's how it came about. And you'd get seven or eight us young fishermen walking up Lost of High Street, and everyone would be turning round and thinking, they must be fishermen. And uh, sort of like suits like this. But the one I've got... So you've, you've brought a couple of photos yeah, that, yeah, along that. of... Uh... That was a sort of like... Uh, that was when I was... Um, 17, that was an off-white suit. Oh, looking very dapper, very Miami Vice. <laughs> and, and what about the clothes on the trawler? Well, as I said, we used to have the roll neck jumpers, the smock, right thick trousers. We'd have boot stockings that come up to our knees. We would have what was called a wrist binder, that be on your wrists. That was for the reason, when you had your oil skins on, obviously we had the oil skins, the sou'wester. Well, Southwest is the hat, right? Southwest is the hat, yeah. And then we'd have a wrist bind around our wrists because when we were gutting fish up, the, 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 the sleeve would chafe against our wrists and all the salt water, and a lot of fish would just get sea salt water boils. But with these wrist binders, they used to stop the old boils coming. Would you ever contemplate it going out to sea without all of that gear? You wouldn't, you, could, you couldn't do it, Steve, for a simple reason. <clears throat> as I said, the environment was, summertime, yeah, that's nice and warm. But basically in the wintertime, you have to sort of like look after yourself. What was it that you loved so much? Was it moments? Was it fleeting moments or is it yes. more than that? You're in an environment, you're in the open air, fresh. And 
you're, you're working for a living. Whether it's a gale of wind, you're on the deck with the lads, and that's just, you're your own man, basically. You had to skip in the wheelhouse, obviously, but you're your own, the camaraderie, I just thought was brilliant. And the first thing I can remember, three years old, the smell of the fish marker, hearing the seagulls swooping, seeing the steam from the trawlers, seeing the men going about their job. And my mother always said, that first moment that was ingrained in you to be a fisherman. Keith, thank you so much for having a cup of tea with me and sharing your stories. Cheers, Steve. Nice to be able to enlighten you on the fishing industry. <laughs> Time to head home. A final footnote to that conversation. Keith's got two sons. They have not followed him into the fishing industry. They have, however, kept the family's centuries-old connection to the sea. They both work in the North Sea oil and gas industry. Thanks to Keith. Thanks to Sophie, and thanks to you for sharing your time with us. Say hello on Instagram, The Factory Next Door, or email me, steve at thefactorynextdoor.com. Right, I think I'm off to buy a purple suit. Until next time, bye. <laughs>